0: We are actually already in a very Orwellian world, but people didn't seem to notice.
1: We fit the fittest minds with the chip inside. You can link it digitized that which, prior to this, was higher than science could ever devise. Nice. This is a neural interface. We're going to stick it in your face, and it your brain interlace. There's an arms war on, and we're going to win the race. Leave everything in the race. Bring the face.
2: Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community.
1: Up first, we want to thank our sponsors, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of the Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io or you can also email us at info at and we would be glad to talk to you about it.
2: So we recently acquired another URL and this one's for our open wiki dedicated to biohacking, grinding and plantable technology. Uh, the domain name is cyborg.ist and submissions are open for content which is to be hosted on this site.
1: We're also seeking bios of biohackers, grinders and citizen scientists for community review. Also welcome for submission are tutorials through both written guides and along with video as well.
2: Other content such as tech reviews or reviews of uh, works of uh, works of words, novels, uh, short stories, what have you, may also be submitted uh, if pertaining to the theme of biohacking, citizen science, etc. If you or you you have a product that you'd like uh, our team of volunteers to look over feel free to contact us at info at cyborg.ist
1: for those of you that are also hosting an event or a conference and wish it to be covered in this wiki um, and added to our google calendar as well email us at info at cyborg.ist
2: now today we have john sunman as our guest he is author of several biohacking novels and uh, would you please uh, introduce yourself and tell us uh, what biohacking, grinding, and transhu- transhumanism means to you, and also your
0: your work. Okay, uh, well, my name is John Sundman, and uh, it's jsundmanus on Twitter. Um, I, uh, I live in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, and I spent a long time in the computer industry working in, uh, in Silicon Valley, and... Um, And I'm married to a molecular biologist. So these things kind of informed some of my sensibilities. And I I wrote my first novel, Acts of the Apostles, in 1999. And I imagined uh, programmable nanobots um, based on a bacteriophage type uh, design that fell into the hands of a bunch of uh, a Silicon Valley cult led by a would-be messiah kind of thing. So that... Some of the things I imagined for that book turned out to be pretty, uh, uh, pretty accurate, pretty prescient. And the book kind of has a, a a little bit of a cult following. And since then I've written a bunch of other, uh, uh, books on biohacking and AI type themes. But, um, here on Martha's Vineyard, I also, uh, make about half my income driving a big pickup truck and demolishing houses. And, uh, Taking construction debris to the dump, so I'm a working class hero, as well as a freelance technical writer. I was at uh, DefCon in uh, uh, 2016, and and I gave a talk there where the, my basic theme was that I, I believe that uh, biohacking is going to follow you know, the path of regular computer hacking. Uh, we're going to see that some of the same same trends.
1: So that's me. So, um, you just mentioned there you went to DEFCON and with all the work you've been doing with your books and stuff, um, the theme for DEFCON DEF this year, I think is, um, uh, something to do with, I think it's, is it 1983, which is the idea of the year before, you know, the, the Orwellian world. Do you take any, um, um, influence from George Orwell's 1984 on, on the books that
0: you've written? Oh, absolutely. Um, my, uh, I wrote a little novella called the pains, uh, it's an illustrated, uh, kind of phantasmagoria and that is set in a universe that's one half or about one third George Orwell's 1984 and one third Ronald Reagan's 1984. So I just, uh, kind of did a mashup of those two, uh, environments. Cause it seemed to me when, when we were living through 1984, we were actually already in a very Orwellian world, but people didn't seem to notice, um, so, yeah, I think about Orwell a lot. He's a big influence on a lot of my writing.
1: Do you think um, in terms of, I know you were saying before about your nanobots, et cetera, and how that's becoming more and more, you know, today's technology, how far down the road do you reckon we are? Are we like living the nightmare that George Orwell said we will live? Or do you think it's worse? Even? Um, well... That's a tricky one. I mean, the, the, all these issues
0: are very complicated and, and complex. I, it, the Orwellian stuff that is most on my mind uh, these days, of course, is is Trump and the rise of, uh, of neo-fascism. Um, and so that doesn't have that much to do with technology, per se, except for the technology of surveillance and control, which is not really related to biohacking directly. So, um you know, I think there's a lot of, of, of scary shit going on. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very, um, yeah, as a novelist and just my, given my general predisposition, I, I, focus on all the negative stuff, but there's a lot of exciting positive stuff going on too. So I guess I don't have a crystal ball. I'm, I'm just uh, very attuned and enervated by a lot of the trends that we see around us.
1: I guess one, one of those topics, um, Sorry, I cut this for the jump. Keep going. No, I'm transitioning.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, then I'll jump in with my jump question. Um, So we've mentioned Orwell a couple times there. just makes me have to say, have you tried Soylent? Uh, Is it... (laughs) Is it as bad as uh, I've seen people's faces make it out to be? No. no. Do you kind of wish that, you know, there might be some green in the future? Uh, well,
0: I have not tried it, but I know I have a friend here on, on, on Martha's Vineyard um, uh, who, who lives on that shit. And he's a, a guy named uh, uh, Irish Mike who's got this big YouTube following. He makes big giant swords and uh, they actually had a discovery channel tv show about him a while ago so he's uh he's living in the world of uh of you know make your living off of youtube but he eats that soil and shit i don't <laughs> i don't know how's
1: how's it going for him <laughs> I've always wanted to try it. It's just been in the back of my mind forever. Except yeah. that um, I think they did a documentary or interview where they saw that it wasn't the most like sanitary conditions, and oh. that was, stopped me at the time. But
0: yeah, I guess I like food. You know, <laughs> as a general concept. I prefer food to uh, to you know uh, random uh, you know glop.
1: But, <laughs> I see. Cooper's now suggesting that we maybe do a a taste test at Defcon for uh, for this. I'm not too sure how involved I am in, in this.
2: I can actually one up that by saying, why don't we take a couple days and you know, do nothing but Soylent and or other protein shakes, and you know skip the meal replacement bars. We don't. There's a limit to how much I want to punish myself, and then uh, break it by getting the Uh, whoever wants to come along with us and laugh once we break that fast of sorts at one of the uh, Vegas buffets and see how ravenous we might be as we smell the different smells coming off the buffet. And uh, then it just makes me wonder how animalistic would we get at that point of filling up our plate and then predicting it, saying, go away, meat, eating, meh.
0: Yeah, I I stopped eating uh, meat in, uh, uh, February this year. And, uh, you know, this is kind of interesting. I did it for a bunch of reasons and I, I didn't, uh, have a, an end date to the experiment. Um, but I haven't decided to go back to resume meat eating. So it is kind of interesting because some, some, uh, uh, Foods that I used to like now no longer appeal to me. You know, me like cooking meat smells. It's funny how your, your body adapts to uh, new regimes. You know what I mean?
2: Well, speaking about that, it just makes me curious. Uh, how far did you take it? Uh, obolacto uh, vegan, or somewhere no, in between?
0: No, I just I just gave up the meat of uh, of land-based animals. So I, I still eat so and I eat eggs and milk and so forth so mm-hmm. it's kind of a wimpy vegetarian kind of approach
2: Yeah, that just made me curious especially you know, you said you're in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts an area that has really good seafood from uh, What I very much so remember from my last visit up there. It just then makes me say okay if you've given up all forms of protein um, that are animal-based I'm hoping you augment it, and if by you know, extra beans, what have you? Otherwise, then I would have to say, what what have you? What changes have you experienced with your body? I've, like uh, friends of mine that have attempted to go vegetarian and vegan that did not up the ante and really work with their nutritionalism and vitamin intakes, they notice uh, brittle fingernails, brittle hair, um, just really dried out uh, and pasty skin they had a lot of problems when I and myself went uh, vegan and then obolacto lacto for an extended period of time all for medical reasons I I missed the meat uh, that was my not really a choice it was called my liver was pissed I had to let my liver um, heal uh, and give it time to get away from the normal Texan diet of red meat, lots of it, barbecue, (laughs) what have you, you know, steaks as big as your face. You might think of, you know, the typical Texan diet. Well, some of it's true, some of it's not, but um, my body had enough of grease and fat. So I had to do a lot of, a lot of just plant-based everything, but up, up the ante a lot with tofu and with just regular beans, what have you. Uh, otherwise, I did uh, have, for a little bit have problems with fingernails, but um, like they would just shred uh, while doing regular just uh, regular manual labor on the house. And, and once I up- took vitamin suppul- supplements uh, in addition to a multivitamin and also upped my protein, I was able to see a little bit more um, stabilization of, of my body tissues what have you?
0: Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I didn't change that much. I mean, I, I, I eat a lot of, uh, eggs and dairy. And, uh, like I said, I eat, I eat fish. So, um, I, it was no big challenge for me, but also I, you know, I, I work out a lot and so I, I, uh, eat, uh, whey protein for that. So anyway, I haven't noticed any real changes other than, um, uh, I put on some muscle lately, and I noticed I can eat more without getting too fat. So,
2: I gotcha. And just going along um, with with your writing and and the background research for it. What does genetic therapy um, mean to you in your own? Well, life?
0: Um I think there's a lot of uh, really uh, really hopeful. Stuff going on in terms of of human uh, diseases, uh, fixing um, um, really tragic conditions that uh, some people are dealing with, and and we have I can't take off the top of my mind uh, published research on on um, successful CRISPR based uh, therapies for rare diseases, but I know there have been some. Here on Martha's Vineyard, there's a project that I've been involved with um, to uh, engineer um, mice that are immune to Lyme and other tick-borne illnesses. So this is, um, uh, adapting, uh, mouse cells. These are not, uh, laboratory mice, but the, the actual wild mice that are, uh, you know, uh, indigenous or native to the, to the Island. And, um, and then altering their immune system so they have a much stronger response to Lyme disease. So the idea is um, we can't get rid of ticks, uh, but if we can make it so that they can't um, become infected with Lyme disease, maybe we can eliminate that disease. Um, especially on the islands of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, where you can imagine uh, totally changing the uh, the the entire population of mice. you know, someplace on the mainland where there's billions of mice, it might be a lot harder, but, but the interesting thing about this project is the science is being done by scientists at MIT and Harvard and Tufts. And, um, but, but the governance of the project is entirely local. In other words, the, 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 uh, the boards of health, um, of the six towns on the island of Martha's vineyard, uh, are the comprise the advisory, uh, body to this project. And, um, and they've decided, for example, that they said we don't want any non mouse genes uh, introduced into the mouse genome of this new engineered mouse you're working on. So the scientists are okay, they're, they're taking the direction. In other words, it's not a scientist led project. It's a community led project. So it's, 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 um, it's an experiment in open science as well as genetic engineering. So it's a really fascinating project. And uh, I've been involved to the extent that there have been forums hosted by the local library. And I've been moderator of panel discussions with the scientists and bioethicists and so forth. So anyway, those are some of the the, the, uh, the hopeful things on the horizon. I sure as hell would love to see Lyme disease eradicated like smallpox or polio. Um, it is a fucking horrible thing. And, um, you know, that's, that's, I forget what the original question was, but that, that's some of the, of what I see going on. That's that's uh, uh, very hopeful in genetic engineering. You know, I write novels about stuff that goes bad and scary, bad stuff, but there's also a lot of
1: really exciting, cool stuff going on. Um, so, a lot of our listeners would have heard to a talk um, that we did with Oliver Medvedev. I think it's Medvedev um, to do with CRISPR. But I was wondering if you, if you're able to offer a really oversimplified explanation of what CRISPR is for our listeners that don't know. Um, well, sure. Um, first of all, the 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 uh,
0: the word CRISPR stands for something or something or other palindrome, something or other, but don't waste your time trying to understand what that means because it's just kind of like a red herring. Uh, CRISPR is based on a, uh, a few uh, proteins that cut and repair DNA that were originally discovered in bacteria and the bacteria used them to evolve a kind of a a really rudimentary uh, immune system, a bacterial immune system to viruses. So that's where, uh, it came from, and uh, people who were studying this weird um, uh, phenomenon in bacteria where they could recognize the, the DNA patterns in, in viruses that they'd already been exposed to, they realized that the same um, technique, these same proteins, um, could be taken from bacteria and put in other kinds of cells, and basically, they can be programmed to look for any particular sequence of DNA and uh, change it to, to make a cut at a, at a programmed uh, site in DNA and um, either cut it uh, or cut it and insert something else. And then the body, uh, the cell's normal DNA repair mechanism will, will reassemble the DNA after the CRISPR system has cut it. And the way you program it is you find a DNA sequence that you want to edit and you engineer an RNA sequence that maps to that. Then you introduce your custom RNA along with the CRISPR protein. It's called Cas9. There's various different versions of it, but uh, the most common and original one is Cas9. And uh, so you, you edit your uh, RNA and you introduce your RNA uh, with the CRISPR cutting proteins into the cell that you want to modify. And it it edits that uh, cell's DNA, and then, of course, when that cell replicates, that change uh, cascades down to its generations. So there, there's lots of really nifty videos on YouTube that can show it, uh, um, uh, you know, animations of how it works, and it's really fascinating stuff.
2: I did have a question since uh, we had mentioned Orwell as uh, one of your uh, inspirations. Uh, was curious. What What are some of the other inspirations, uh, other than Orwell, that you may have been exposed to and affected your work? Um, perhaps the series of, of books and games known as Shadowrun. No, I don't know
0: that one. Actually, um, I, I I I don't know. Um, I guess what when I was when I was working in Silicon Valley in 1980s and 90s actually I was based in Massachusetts but I had one office in California and one Massachusetts and spent a lot of time going back and forth um between the two coasts and eventually I got pretty bummed out by the whole uh experience uh high tech experience and um um and the kind of technology worshiping mindset and so that that was, I think, at the at the uh, at the back of my mind when I uh, when I set out to write my first book, and um, you know, I'm trying to think of any literary influences. But that's that was basically the the, uh, the reason the book is called Acts of the Apostles. It's is it's kind of implies this kind of religious feeling that people have about technology. They turn to technology for the same thing that they used to turn to religion for. They want they want freedom from death is one thing. They want meaning in their lives. Uh, they want a sense of something larger than themselves. And a lot of people you see turning to technology for the same things that they that will, will ridicule other people to turning to religion for. So, um, but actually the genesis of of my, uh, of my book was I was gonna, I was gonna write a uh, murder mystery. And there was a friend of mine who was a chip designer and he was having a real hard time getting his chip to compile. And he was going nuts. He wasn't sleeping. He was just sleeping on the floor of his office trying to figure out, you know, the, this one last bug in his chip. And I saw him one day in the hallway, and he was looking at an etch plot, you know, a, a photo of the of the chip. And it was blown up uh, to, like, eight feet by eight feet, and it was taped on the hallway. And he was just staring at it. And um, so I went up to him, and I said, uh, I said you know uh, – I know how to put a Trojan horse into software, but could somebody put a a Trojan horse in your hardware and you not know about it? And he said, John, there's 200,000 transistors on that chip. You could put the fucking Titanic in there and I wouldn't know it. And so, (laughs) and, 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 uh, so that gave an idea. Okay. So chip designer is debugging his chip. He figures out that one of his coworkers has sabotaged it and by putting in a Trojan horse, and then after he makes his discovery, he gets murdered. And so, um, so I said, oh, I got a plot for a, for a murder mystery. I've always wanted to write a novel. I'll write a, a model about this, you know, Silicon Valley chip designer gets murdered. And so then I started writing the book, and I figured, well, why the hell would somebody go to all the trouble of putting a Trojan horse in hardware when it's so much easier to do it in software? And the only thing I could come up with was real-time programming of of uh, nanobots to rearrange human DNA to take over people's brains. And so, anyway, that was just kind of... I found myself writing about biohacking and 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 uh, and, and uh, brain hacking and nanobots and all that stuff. I was just making it up as I went along. But I, I found out that, obviously, these preoccupations had been in the back of my mind uh, for a long time, and they just manifested themselves. They just kind of, you know... It was like uh, doing Caesarean section on yourself, just ripping this thing out of my guts, you know? Anyway, that's how the first novel came to be.
1: I think we have to remember, I guess, along the way somewhere, the Trojan horse was always hardware to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Back, back when, is it the Greeks that used it or something? Yeah. Yeah, the War of Trojan. whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a question? Um, Obviously, you've been a writer for quite a while now. Um, and obviously, technology moves quite a lot. So working in this sphere in, in any capacity, things change very quickly. Um, how does the change of technology change your thoughts and um, sort of your... What, what would you consider as the threats of the future at, at this stage or the things to watch?
0: Well, when it comes to to biotechnology and genetic editing, the the, the fascinating thing about it is that it's basically democratic and uncontrollable. I mean, you know, and it's enormously powerful. So if you look at something like uh uh nuclear energy, nuclear energy is, you know, it's the old dual use problem. It can be used for real good stuff like, you know, creating energy or it can be used for creating bombs. But you need to have a pretty sophisticated operation. Basically you need to be a nation or a nation state kind of thing to put together a nuclear bomb. But if you look at something like genetic editing, let's say somebody wants to create a, a variation on the, uh, uh, a smallpox virus and target it. So it would only affect people of a certain race or people who carried a certain gene. Um, you know, you could do that in a small lab. You could do that with five people, in theory. Anyway, I mean, the technology is not quite there yet, but it will be. I'm say within ten years, and and so, so that makes it a, a lot more, uh, uh, I don't know, unpredictable. You know, it's it is scary, and I've talked to people who are. Uh, uh, experts in biosecurity and biosafety and they say yeah there's no way to to you can try to keep an eye out on on people you think might be bad actors but um it's it's really hard to to control it because it is you can do it in a small lab so i think that's going to be something to watch out for and and people can i'm afraid that people might do things with the best of intentions that have bad side effects so if you look at Ecological systems—you know—you can accidentally screw up an ecological system um, uh, with with the best of intentions. If, like, famous cases like the the cane toads in Australia, are you familiar with that? What happened with that?
1: No, I haven't uh, haven't had that uh, one.
0: (laughs) Well, this um, is—I don't know—sometime I think about forty years ago, there was a problem with a certain kind of beetle. Uh, a bug that was eating um, sugar cane in Australia. So, somebody got the idea to bring in this species of toad that eats those beetles. So, they brought in a bunch of these uh, toads, and now they are totally overrunning Australia. They're, they're, they wop out, you know, the toads are just out of control. Did, There's, did billions you just say of them. totally, totally, overrun. yeah, totally. Oh, yeah, thank oh, you. Very, yes, very yes. good. <laughs> Yeah. So so and, and people have, for example, released uh, tropical fishes. You know that, that they got tired of having in their aquarium, they they flush them down the toilet or something, and they get into the oceans where they have no predators, and uh, and they and they go out of control. They wipe out the whole ecosystems. And and uh, so I can I can imagine people. Um, you know, Josiah Zayner has these shot glasses that he, that he hands out that say biohack the planet. And I can imagine people, uh, doing things saying, Oh, I think I'll get rid of this species of mosquito because it, it, uh, you know, everybody will be happy with me. And then you find out like, you know, all the birds die cause they got no mosquitoes left to eat. Um, the butterfly
1: uh, effect almost.
0: yeah. And, and so if, if, you know, the, I, I think that, that there's there's potential for all kinds of of, of bad uh, developments, whether deliberately by deliberately bad actors who want to create, for example, a bioweapon or something, or by people who have the best of intentions and just do something accidentally, or they do something deliberately, not realizing the side effects that could be there, so... Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to to watch that over the next several years. And the, one of the, the point I made in my DEF CON talk was if you look what happened with with computer hacking and and, and internet-based uh, malware, you know at first the knowledge to to do things like create a virus and distribute it over the net was confined to a you know small number of people, and they were located either at, at universities or in uh, the research and development um, groups at large computer, uh, companies, but eventually or soon enough, that information became available to, to local groups, like, you know, home computer hobbyist groups that would uh, like, you know, the Steve Jobs and, uh, Wozniak home computer, Com- uh, club and, and before Apple computer in the 1970s and people would just get together and teach each other. Just like, you know, that's how rock and roll graduates. People don't go to, University to learn rock and roll, they just learn it from listening to other people, and so that's how computer hacking uh, spread. And uh, um, and it's just word of mouth. And now people, anybody can go to Defcon and, and and become self educated. And so that's what's going to happen with um, biohacking. And you guys are a big part of that movement, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's it's not you don't have to go to university and get a PhD. to to learn how to uh, be a biohacker. You just listen to dangerous minds, you know? And so uh, I I think it would be naive to believe that there aren't nasty people looking for nasty things to do as well as good people looking for good things to do.
2: So you mentioned, uh, well, one of your books being the, you know, book ID being the Trojan and the chip. Are you happy to be familiar with the, malware rootkits that uh, were a huge problem and Lenovo firmware uh, as reported by uh, hackernews.com back in 2015 uh, they would install this uh, superfish malware and uh, keep inserting uh, utilities from Lenovo that were often called crapware or better known as bloatware. Uh, and also found that those applications were very insecure and allowed for attacks by bad actors to be able to happen so much more frequently.
0: Yeah, I followed that story, and uh, it was pretty—it was pretty disturbing. You know, there was also a case, and um, in, in, in my book, I invented like kind of a, a CPU within a CPU, like a whole little uh, information processor. Um, it was piggybacking on the the logic that was already there, and a couple of years ago, somebody discovered one of them. There was actually, a, I got, I can't remember what, what whose chip it was, but uh, it might have been, even have been an Intel chip, where they had a whole separate um, CPU uh, hidden within the the uh, the main CPU, and and of course they didn't think anybody would know about it. <laughs> but you can never keep that shit secret. You know, once it gets out then anybody who has access to it can do whatever they want.
1: So um a question a question I wanted to ask you as you've you sort of alluded to earlier in the discussion about um you know technology moving quite quickly. Um do you think as a society we're more aware of technology and the risk factors involved in technology now than we were before, sort of like, you know, a, dec- a decade ago or, or so. And also as a writer, it'd be good to get your insight into what kind of responsibilities writers have maybe in increasing awareness for the society. Well, those are, those are two good questions.
0: I, I think the first question is about awareness is the, pop, the general uh, public aware. I think there's such an incredible wide range uh, you know, on the one hand, you have people who are enormously sophisticated and aware. And uh, they're aware of um, biology. They're aware of, of digital technology and computer programming. They're, you know, they're, uh, you know, there's just some really smart cats out there. And, um, uh, and, and they're like, the, there's a guy named Kevin Esfeld who's in this uh, mouse program, mouse tick's a Lyme disease program. Uh, he's the guy who came up with the idea of a gene drive, uh, which is basically including the, the the genes to to create a CRISPR program and and, and inserting that in cells. So anyways, you can look up gene drives if you don't know what they are. Um, and so he's just this, he knows a, a lot about everything. And then on the other hand, you have this whole anti-vax movement of people who think they understand that uh, how vaccines work, and they believe all this conspiracy bullshit. That is just—it's uh, not only that that their beliefs about vaccines are nonsensical. It's just that their understanding of the process of science and how scientific uh, conclusions are arrived is is uh, is nonsense. So they don't even understand. Uh, the basis of, of, uh, evidence-based logic. So that's, that's, you know, my observation about, are we more aware or not? I, 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 I think that, um, the scary thing is that the, the people who, who will, uh, um, have access to this technology, a lot of them, won't understand the, the what the, the tools they're using. So that's, that's part one. Uh, part two is what are the responsibilities of science, of, of artists and writers to help uh, move this discussion along? Well, that's something I, I care about a lot. I actually was invited to give a talk at a SynBio Beta conference in Scotland last year. And, um, and, and I, I, the name of my talk was art ethics and synthetic biology and my point was that we need artists and including writers to help people think differently about the implications of of technology and science and you know we've always done this um, but uh, I think it's even more incumbent on us to, to, to do this now because as I said, the, the technology is not limited just to people in the university laboratories anymore. It's everywhere. Um, so I had another thought there, but it just flew away. But yes, I, I believe that, um, oh, I don't remember what it was. So Neil Stevenson, are you familiar with the writer Neil Stevenson? I think I wrote Cryptonomicon and a bunch of other science fiction novels. Um, he, he uh, put out a call uh, last year for science fiction writers, of which I'm one, um, to to stop writing all these doom and gloom novels like I write about how everything's going to turn to shit and start writing books like science fiction used to do that would present a compelling vision of a better world and a better future. And out of his, uh, uh, in response to uh, his call for this, a uh, program uh, started at, arizona state university called project hieroglyph which is for artists and writers to work together to come up with stories and so forth uh uh, that help imagine a better world and myself i i i like that idea somewhat but i really don't write books to argue for a point of view to to push a polemical point of view i i try to write stories that are about real human people facing real human problems. In other words, they're not political. They're not trying to convince you that technology is bad or technology is good or anything like that. They're just trying to tell a human story and get you thinking about stuff. Um, So I I believe it's a very important role for, and not just novelists, but uh, movie makers and video game designers and, and, uh, and visual artists, uh, Anybody who helps people kind of step back and look at things from a different way to to uh, to reimagine different realities. So, does that answer the question?
1: Yeah, great answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, talking about the the books that you have, actually, I just looked on your website of the list of books that you have, and um, I think a, a number of people listening to this podcast will be really interested in them because they look, you know. Quite relevant and actually quite cool. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of give us a, a sort of a brief summary of some of the books, or maybe even like a writer's insight in, into what the thought process behind them is, and what you want to get across with each of the. Of okay, so the first book I
0: wrote was called Acts of the Apostles, and I said it uh, that was the one where I imagined the the convergence of biological technology and digital technology for basically genetic genetic editing and put that in the, in the hands of this technology cult out of, out of uh, Silicon Valley. And um, so that was designed to be basically a straight ahead thriller, like a Michael Crichton kind of uh, thing. And the next book I wrote um, is called cheap complex devices. And it's about a storytelling contest between two artificial intelligence constructs. So it's much more fanciful and, uh, and it's kind of a, a, uh, a lampoon of artificial in, uh, intelligence as a discipline. Um, and, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, unreliable narrator stuff and going in there. So, so you have to read the book carefully, or at least, you know, aware that the, that, uh, you're being misled and, but also, Acts of the Apostles and cheap Complex Devices, when read together, you see that they form a system. So each book kind of tells you not to believe the other one implicitly. Um, then, So after after I wrote um, uh, those two books, I had another one uh, kicking around in my head, and this was the, uh, the Orwell's 1984 meets Reagan's 1984. And that was just kind of a dark... Uh, fable, but I wanted to get at some other ideas that were running around in my head at the time having to do with, um, um, chaos theory and, and how we can know or learn anything. Uh, so the story as it uh, unfolded was, was, uh, I thought wonderfully dark and creepy. And I thought of it would be good to make it an illustrated book. And I, I found this guy, uh, that I had known online for a while, I'd never actually met him in person, but I, I saw some paintings that he had done that somebody had commissioned and they were so nightmarish. I said, Oh my God, I got to have this guy illustrate my book. So that, um, so there's, there's 12 illustrations, uh, by this guy it goes by cheeseburger Brown. Um, and that kind of relates to the other Acts of the Apostles and um, Cheap Complex Devices, too. The, the three books kind of interrelate with each other. They're all in different styles and different subjects, but the themes um, kind of reinforce each other. And then, so I got a call from a publisher um, about, uh, I don't know, 2014 or so uh, from, they they said, "Well, your book, Acts of the Apostles, been around for like nearly 15 years now. It's got like a cult following. Some people are are, are wildly enthusiastic about this. You know, this, uh, this self-published book that most people have never heard of, can't find in bookstores, but but it does has this really you know fanatical following. So, um, so they asked me if I if I'd be." willing to sell the rights and they'd publish a new version of Acts of the Apostles I said yeah sure sounds good pay me money and so I signed a contract and then the editor <laughs> said okay this is good but you need to change this and change that and it what I thought was going to be like a project for 3 weeks turned out to be uh more than a year's worth of work um for which I had been paid like a $1000 up front and and at the end of it I had a book of uh so take Acts the Apostles, cut out 40%, throw it away, and put in 40% new stuff. So it's kind of like the same basic story, but it's but it's a totally reimagined version of that story. But right at the end, uh, after going through all these changes, um, it was it was kind of a painful process because I thought I had signed up for two weeks' worth of work and ended up doing a year's worth of work. And they would say, Well, you're almost done, but you just gotta change one more thing. Almost done, you gotta change one more thing. And then they <laughs> right after they said, "Okay, you're done." A couple days later, I said they called me up and said, "Oh, by the way, we just sold the company, and uh, and the person who bought it um, may or may not do your book." And they and they decided not to do my book, so the rights reverted to me. So that's where BioDigital came from. It's a new retelling of Acts of the Apostles, the same basic story, but uh, told from a different point of view with uh, a lot of things uh, rearranged, changed up. And so now the book I'm working on, I've been working on for a long time, uh, is called Mountain of Devils. If if Acts of the Apostles is set in a specific time period, set in 1995, um, basically. And the the main characters are in their 20s and 30s. And um, the villain is in his 50s. So the book that Mountain of Devils uh, tells about when these people first met each other, when the villain is a uh, 27-year-old professor at Stanford, and the protagonists are entering their teenage years. So, and it's set in 1975 around the time of the first recombinant DNA experiments that were being done at Stanford by uh, Paul Berg and uh, Stanley Cohen and some of the early pioneers of of genetic engineering, when the questions were first starting to be raised, uh, you know, like is this safe, uh, is it ethical, and so forth, to to take genes from one species and put them into another species. So I'm really looking forward to that. And as part of the research for this book, I uh, I interviewed Paul Berg, who got the Nobel Prize in 1980 for his work on um, uh, taking uh, virus genes from viruses and inserting them into bacteria. That was the first recombinant DNA work. So that was kind of nifty. And are, are you guys familiar with the uh, Silomar conference of 1975? So, Well, let me tell you briefly what it is. I'm sure most of your readers or listeners are not familiar with it. So in 1975, in, uh, there was a conference um, that... Uh, uh, was put together by Paul Berg and several other genetic engineers, including uh, uh, Jim Watson of Watson and Crick Frame, the guys who figured out the structure of DNA. Um, and they decided to have a conference to discuss what the potential risks were of this new technology for cutting and splicing DNA. And it was held at a place uh, called Asilomar, the Asilomar Conference Center, which is um, south of San Francisco. It's a lovely, lovely state park on the ocean there and uh and what happened was they had this conference and they had just a few people from the press uh including a reporter from the new york times and it became front page news at the new york times it was on the cover of time magazine and all of a sudden there was this huge uh uproar uh, from the the general public saying what are these crazy scientists doing? Making new forms of of life? This is Frankenstein stuff. This is scary. This is bad, and and there were congressional hearings held, and uh, and there were threats to shut down all kinds of uh, government funding for scientific research if it went into genetic engineering and so forth. So that's the overall setting of of what's going on in my my new novel, uh, uh, Mountain of Devils, which is. I said it should be ready by October.
2: So have you ever considered trying to get any of your books made into, you know, a movie or TV?
0: Well, I've I've certainly thought about it, but it's it's so so freaking hard. I mean, it's hard enough just to sell them. And and I have a, a buddy of mine uh who is a working uh actor based in Hollywood. He's been making his living as an actor for the last 30 years. And he's also been a a movie producer and television producer and so forth. And, uh, and I sold him the rights to explore making this into a movie. I sold the rights for $1. I said, here, see, you make something happen, then get back to me and we'll renegotiate a deal. And he was very enthusiastic about it, but, but, um, you know, it's hard to, even if you're in Hollywood and you know everything works and you've had successful movies in the past and you're well-connected, even then it's hard to get a movie made. So um, I haven't put any real effort into it. If I figure if, the, if my expert friend can't get any traction on it, um, I'm not going to invest in that. I'm just going to try to grow the audience for readers of my books. But well, it, well, certain, certain, it would certainly be fun. And I, every once in a while, I turn on a TV show and I say, fuck, there it goes, there's one of my stories right there. I don't know if they stole it from me or somebody else just had the same thought. But, you know, when I see something, you know, somebody will send me an email. I say, John, there was a there was a scene from one of your books I saw on a TV show last
1: night. And I say, oh, well, what are you going to do? Potential's there then. <laughs> <laughs> um, just actually a totally selfless question. Um, would you advise reading... Um, bio digital, like skip into biodigital or read Axe first?
0: Uh, you know I think I, I think I would say read biodigital because um, it's got it's 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 even more of a thriller than axe. Axe Apostle has these various subplots that kind of go off in different directions but but uh biodigital is just straight ahead like a locomotive I think. So, um, yeah, I would, I would say read biodigital and the name biodigital comes from the, the conceit of the convergence of biological technology and digital technology. So programming DNA and, uh, to use it for computing device and, um, um, you know, using, uh, uh, digital techniques to model biological functions and so forth. they they, they used to be two very discrete, distinct fields. Biology was one field and programming was another field. But now they're converging.
2: I did have a question uh, back again talking about um, books to movies not just being difficult, but wouldn't also a possible danger be basically the bastardization of your stories? to something almost unrecognizable, kind of like what happened to, uh, as an example, Jim Butcher's Dresden Files, when it was made into a TV show for uh, not even a full season. It, it Most fans would uh, have say most likely that it, it was just unrecognizable as a work, really as related to the book, because so much was simplified, so much was just destroyed. It almost makes me wonder that much more You know, with it being a hit show like The Expanse, comparing it to the books, you're just like, oh my god! You know, each book could probably be an entire season. Yet, it's almost like a a couple episodes. You're leaving half the book out, and just trying to move further, just to the most um, exciting, tiny little bits and pieces of the story, without telling the full story and all the all the meaning, all the politics behind it contained and just giving you like the bold type method of sorts of the story, like the not even a cliff notes version.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I I have a couple of of reactions to that general question Uh, right now. I'd be happy. I I, I remember when, uh, when I was trying to to sell my first book to uh, a New York uh, publisher and I had an agent who worked very hard with me, Um, but we weren't able to, to sell it. So I published it myself. But anyway, I was down at the editor uh, like the editor in chief of one of the big New York publishers. I can't remember who it was. Uh, it might've been random house. or but, but, um, so they were trying to figure out if I was flexible or, or whether I was one of these, uh, artists that like, you can't change any of my precious words because I, they're my words and nobody can fuck with them. And, and I said, "I said, listen, I'm just trying to make money. If you want to take my character and have him, you know, wearing a ballet dress, just put him in a tutu. I don't care. So, so if they wanted to take one of my books and make it into something that I totally didn't recognize at all, it, you know, it would be nice to have money in my bank account for a change. So if people paid me good money, I they could do whatever they wanted with it. That's that's just kind of the mercenary." Uh, Attitude, on the other hand, I am proud of the stuff that I've written, and I would like to see it properly appreciated there was a, There was a book called uh, "The Sense of an Ending" by Julian Barnes that came out i don't know like ten years ago, and it won the Man Booker Prize, which is one of the big literary prizes in uh, england and And I think it's just the most wonderful book It's, it's beautifully written, it's very subtle, it's very deep. And it's just a story of a man who's, uh, you know, in his 60s and uh, he encounters one of his first loves uh, from when he was a college guy. He reconnects with her and he finds out stuff uh, about the suicide of 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 a mutual friend of theirs that he had not known and it had turned out it had major implications on his life, even though he was unaware of it. And so the whole book is a meditation on what we know and what we don't know, what we think we know, who we are, who we think we are, and uh, uh, how we can hurt people without realizing that we're hurting them. Uh, and, and, it, and it's just, it's, it's subtle it's deep, it's, it's exquisitely written. So they made a movie out of it. And, and I was, every, every scene I wanted to throw my shoe through the television right, when I was watching it because they, they told some of the basic story, but everything else, I mean, the whole movie totally missed every single significant part of the book. And not only did they, did they miss it, they, got the, they took the exact wrong meaning you know, and I and I was thinking, how could the, how could anybody get it so wrong? How is it possible to take a book and completely trash it like this? And it just kind of offended me. It made me angry. Um, so, yeah, I would not like to see that done to my books the way they did it to Julian Barnes. But, you know, like I said, if somebody wants to pay me enough money, it'd be nice to pay my bills on time. That would be a novel experience. Yeah.
2: So, as an author that deals a lot with science, science fiction, and focusing on genetics research uh, as related to a lot of your topics, do you see um, a a true danger in the direction that we're headed in this technology to take on like a, a, a eugenics um, separation and creation of a second class of augmented and unaugmented? as well as even further, more thought on that would be, do you think the FDA, the government as it is, is even equipped to even begin the conversation of trying to manage and observe this area of research really?
0: Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. And I absolutely do think, um, that there, the, the, uh, eugenics question is looming before us. And, um, and I think that is very possible that first we'll have a stratification, um, and this is what you know I believe the Trump agenda is, uh, of the world into the super rich and super powerful, super connected, and the the, the peasants, like the elimination of, of uh um anything other than these two total classes, the overlords and the people at the, everybody else uniformly, uh, powerless at the bottom. And so then the, the, the super rich would have access to technology, including genetic engineering and uh, technology and nobody else would. So I, I think that maybe people think I'm, uh, you know, paranoid, but I think it's a very, uh, very real possibility. Um, uh, a very real danger. Um, and um, and even if it doesn't go that far, where we have this total nightmarish, you know, Philip K. Dick world, um, already we see the uh, the the situation where people who uh, who have children with disabilities, so they have Down syndrome or whatever, are are being reproached for you know uh, allowing their children to be born. Saying, "How come you allowed that baby to be born with Down syndrome? That's just a, a burden on the rest of us taxpayers. That's a defective human. We have the technology to detect uh, those abnormalities and uh, abort the babies before they're they're before they're born." So there's this backlash against. About uh, you know non typical humans, and you see rhetoric that I find reminiscent of the eugenic uh, language of the early twentieth uh, century that was picked up originated in America and was picked up by the Nazis. Um, so yeah, I think I think some of those trends are out there. I, I don't I don't know how you regulate that, how you control it, how you. Uh, uh, you know from a from a regulatory regime i don't i don't have any insight into that but from a uh from a writer's point of view i i i think it's very important to raise these issues both in fact based uh, non-fiction and in and, and and science fiction and stories that can maybe resonate with people so so yeah
2: so there's been a lot of talk about uh, Josiah Zainer's current research utilizing CRISPR, creating uh, different injectables, uh, whether it be uh, he's trying to create abs without having to workout, uh, build more muscle in his arms using the same thing. Uh, uh, you, you said you were, you were in the room with uh, 30 some odd other people uh, while he was injecting himself live there. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you had read about the other uh, biohacker that basically dropped Trow uh, on stage at the Body Hacking Con and injected himself with uh HIV vaccine as he uh, portrayed it to be. It just makes me wonder what, what your take is on... Um, these more sensationalistic type of uh, explorations, uh, possible, you know, I guess more, more, you know, what's your take on how dangerous, uh, this type of research is and then putting it out there like that, you know, live almost as if it's like open mic night at the coffee shop, but instead, Hey, I'm going to shoot myself up. Yeah. And
0: you can too, kind of thing. Well, yeah. Um, and let me just for a second pimp my uh, newsletter, which is called Technopotheosis. And you can sign up for it on johnsunderman.com. Um, and because I wrote about it, I, I was out at a conference in San Francisco last year. Uh, I was selling books and uh, going to the lectures. It was called Synbio Beta. And uh, I, I looked in the program and, then, and it says there's going to be a workshop on self-editing your own genome using CRISPR. So I said, oh, that's interesting. So I went into the room where this workshop was to be held. And there were about 30 other people. And that was when Josiah Zander said, you're going to watch the first uh, ever experiment of a human editing his own genome using CRISPR. And um, and he said, this is, uh, you know, the, I can't remember what the... Uh, with the actual gene that he was using, but it's, it, there have been experiments done on uh, dogs uh, in China where they took uh, uh, CRISPR and they used it to modify the cells of, of dogs that um, regulate muscle growth. And basically, if you knock out this one gene, uh, you can become like the Incredible Hulk. You know, they, they, they took these dogs and they modified their genomes and, and they gave him a series of injections over, I can't remember, like, you know, a month or two. And these dogs all became like, you know, gorilla-sized dogs or their muscles became just like enormous. So that was what Zander said he was going to do. Take the same gene, which actually appears in humans, the same gene that's in the dogs, and he was going to knock it out using CRISPR like they had done in this other experiment on dogs. And he's going to see if his muscle grew. And... Um, and then later, so, so he said, okay, I'm going to inject myself now with this stuff. And he proceeded to do it using a hypodermic. And to everybody who walked into the room that day, he gave out a little uh, plastic um, bag that contained a little tiny vial that included the CRISPR convo uh, cocktail that he had injected himself with. Um, so you could actually, if you wanted to do it to yourself, you could do it. And um, so. My reaction to this were, um, I had several reactions. One was, it was really an amateur hour presentation. Um, He he said it was going to be a a step-by-step guide for how to do it. But when we got to the room, um, he didn't have a cable to connect his laptop to the projector, so you couldn't follow his slides. And he handed out a pamphlet that was basically illegible uh, that... You know, I was looking to see step-by-step step what to do, and it did have step, uh, some very sketchy step-by-step step instructions. Um, and like I said, it was, it was written. in very small print and uh, hard to read. And, uh, and he, he had a hip flask of whiskey. Everybody who walked in the room had an option of, there were little shot glasses up there, said, hey, you want a shot of whiskey while we're uh, having this fun conference together? Um, So I got a little shot glass with some nice uh, whiskey in it. And I was sipping that while he was doing it. And he was sipping from a hip flask. And, And instead of talking about the science behind what he was trying to do and how CRISPR worked, he was basically talking about the politics of control of technology and how the big corporations and the big universities wanted to keep this technology out of the hands of uh, you and me, and we shouldn't stand for that. We should have this technology ourselves to do whatever we want with it. So it was kind of like a hacker's manifesto kind of thing, and and I just I just was I was not very impressed by it. And then later, uh, you know, um, uh, there was a big reaction in the uh, scientific community of people who follow this kind of thing. A bunch of you know prominent science bloggers saying, first of all, you know, he didn't inject himself with enough stuff really to do anything probably. On the other hand, if it does work, you know, it could be dangerous. For example, if it's one thing to grow your bicep, that's fine. But if you grow your heart muscle, which is, you know, also, um, uh, you know, just a muscle and your heart gets three times its size, then you're going to die. So that's not good. So there's complicated issues here. And just randomly ejecting yourself with stuff could turn out to be very dangerous. And you're setting an example for every high school kid in the world to go start injecting themselves with this stuff. And it's really a whole lot more complicated than it might appear. So that I, I thought that, that his, his presentation was unfortunate. Uh, I don't have any problem with anybody putting into their body, whatever they want. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, if you want to take uh, recreational drugs, that's fine by me. I don't think there should be any, you know, I'm, I'm not, a uh, uh, a Puritan about that stuff. If you want to modify your body, modify your body. It's your body. Um, but the approach he, he took, I thought, was was unfortunate. And he later said he wished he hadn't done it. Um, and so that's one thing. But but I think that the larger point was this really shows that you know we have crossed this threshold. That as I wrote in my newsletter, the toothpaste is not going to go back into the tube. You know um people who who uh people are going to edit themselves they're going to edit their genome with CRISPR. it's going to happen um and uh who knows where it's going to go but all all i do know is that it's you know there's no going back from where we are now you know this is
1: this is just the beginning after seeing something like that i mean obviously you you explained just there that you know he caught po- you've got to be careful in terms of the, the reputation you give out and, and who you're influencing, but would you ever consider modifying or upgrading yourself with this kind of research?
0: Well, um, you know, I'm not you know, opposed to, to modifying my body for, uh, for health reasons. Like, you know, I like to get laser surgery to fix my eyes. Um, you know, but no, I'm not, I'm not interested in, 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 uh, in radical self-modification. I do, I do, uh, take creatine, you know, what creatine is, it's a simple chemical yeah. that, that helps you build muscle. You know, I work out with weights, I'm 65 years old. So, um, us old guys, you know, if you want to keep putting on muscle, you gotta, you gotta do it deliberately. Um, so I'm not, I'm not opposed to, to, uh, self-modifying, but I don't want to do anything dangerous. I just want to, you know, I'm not that curious about modifying my own bodies. I think it's, a, I think biohacking is, is a, uh, is a, uh, fantastically interesting phenomenon. I like following it and seeing what you guys are up to, but I'm not much of a grinder myself.
1: What do you, um, almost like, a as, as an observer, um, think it will take before biohacking or, you know, this, um, gene editing becomes more mainstream what do you think it will take to become in the household of of things that
0: you know i i really don't know i there's an article that came out just last week uh it was published in nature biotechnology so a regular serious academic journal that said studies are, are are starting to come out now showing that CRISPR uh, is not as safe as we thought it was. They're so finding out, you know, when you, when you go in and you edit a piece of DNA uh, with your CRISPR molecules, um, most of the time it just edits where it's supposed to. But every once in a while it, edit, it makes a mistake and it edits, you know, um, it's what they call an off-target uh, edit. So you're trying to edit one spot, but you accidentally edit another spot. And um, I guess they're finding out that off-target stuff is more prevalent than they thought it was. And even if you, even if you have, let's say, uh, 999 out of a thousand edits are made in the right spot, you know there are billions of cells in a human body. So uh, if you make one in a thousand edits wrong. And that and that causes a harmful thing that causes some kind of you know pathology or some kind of disease and that gets inherited by uh, by all that cells descendants as it replicates um, I don't know it, it it, it looked at it first for the first, like, you know, CRISPR's first published in 2012. So the, the first three or four years, it really looked like the off-target effects were under control, and it was really going to turn out to be a revolutionarily safe technology. Now that a little bit of, of uh, cold water has been thrown on that uh, idea. So I don't know. I guess my answer is different today than it would have been two weeks ago. I, I'm guessing maybe 10 years. We'll start to see... Uh, some really t- mainstream acceptance of this and maybe moving out of uh, intense research labs out into the uh, into the hacking community? I don't know. Anywhere from one year to 20 years. But my guess is probably 10.
1: So it's no, no typical, like, event. It's more of just people. Are, are you saying it's the advancements of technology or are you saying, you know, there's yeah, this, mastering. This
0: Mastering the techniques, understanding how it works more. I mean, when I I've been to a bunch of of CRISPR themed scientific conferences, and you know, the the first conferences on it were how does this work? This is mysterious. How how you know we're taking this 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 uh, system from bacteria and we're sticking it in humans? Um, how do we even get it into a human uh, cell? How do we get these molecules ac- across the cell membrane? And very um, Uh, basic research. And then after a couple of years, it started to be okay. um, Now we've figured out some of that stuff, but we don't know how effective it is. Like if you take the the DNA pattern of like TTT or CGG or uh, TAC, you know, all the various um, uh, patterns you can get in DNA. um, What are the, the, statistical efficacies of, of CRISPR at each of those patterns. And they found that it wasn't the same. Some edits are easy to make. In other words, and other edits are more difficult to make. So they spent, you know, researchers around the globe at universities and private companies worked on figuring that out. How do we characterize, uh, where it works and where it doesn't work and how difficult it is to work. And, and then, a lot of a lot of basic research about how it works, and then after a few years, the papers and the presentations started to be okay. We figured out some of that stuff, and we tried it, trying to cure this this disease in mice, and, and to mimic what it is in a human. But we're not working on humans yet. But we worked on on mice, and this is what we found. It worked in some cases, didn't work in other cases, or whatever. So it's really already after only a very few years, there were companies springing up to make CRISPR uh, technologies. They were research is going on in laboratories, curing disease in mice or investigating, you know, uh, in other animals. And, um, and then just last year you started to see, um, uh, reports, the first reports of gene therapy based on, uh, CRISPR in human beings. And it was done for diseases where, you know, they were deadly diseases. There was no other hope. So it was like a a desperation kind of uh, approach and they were having some success in some cases. So um, this stuff is moving really quickly, but it's still, it's still more difficult than Josiah Zaner seemed to imply it was. It's still very tricky. So I think that um, before it gets to the point where it's so easy that, you know, you can do it uh, um, like, like Zaner was trying to uh, imply, uh, I, think, I think it'll be a while. But I think it may get here.
1: So there's, there's some people that, that would say that even when this technology is, is ready, it will need to almost be filtered out to the general public um, because there's a thought that the general society are not prepared for that amount of advancement. How Do you agree with that? Or Well,
0: yes and no. I think that societies in general, um, there's often a backlash when technology change is too... Rapid, and then so societies revert to fundamentalism they revert to nostalgia and i mean you see it all over but you see it in america right now that you know make america great again that that's this nostalgia slogan of let's go back to the way it used to be we don't need all this new stuff where people can change their genders and and uh uh you know, do things that some people, very traditional-minded people find very terrifying because it upsets all their notions of how the world is supposed to work. So, so, and it's not just in America. You see this in, in all kinds of societies all over the world throughout history. When things change uh, too quickly, you often see a backlash. You see fundamentalism. And, uh, uh, you know, just uh, people are trying to put on the brakes saying, slow down, don't change so fast, I can't handle it. Um, so I I think there's, there's, uh, a chance that we'll see a real, a real backlash against this kind of stuff. On the other hand, people, some people, you know, like yourselves in the biohacking community are going to continue to push forward. So it, it interesting times ahead.
2: So. Speaking of looking forward, i just curious how long you think in your own insight uh, until we can you know, walk into a birthing clinic and instead of conceiving a child in the back of a Buick or, you know, home, <laughs> what have you, instead walk in and be like, uh, fill out, you know, just like you're ordering a sandwich at which, which uh, checking off the different ingredients or, uh, attributes that you would want for your child to have uh, and then getting your genetic, uh, genetically engineered, genetically ther- therapied, therapeutic, whatever, baby, therefore creating a modern Spartan culture to where true diversity might be just totally kicked out. Like, you you see an example of, you know, Brazil. They're importing sperm uh, from sperm banks here in the States for light-skinned, fair-haired, blue-eyed children because that is all the rage down in Brazil. But it's like, where's the genetic diversity then? If you're knocking out your own... Well, that, you know, that raises all kinds
0: of, of, of questions, uh, not just the diversity, but just the, 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 the there's a hundred different ethical questions uh, that are raised by that kind of, of scenario. Um, I don't, I don't know when or if that is coming, but I do know that now, Uh, you know, in 2018, it's possible to, you know, build any DNA sequence you want, you know, you just program it in, you type it into your computer, what sequence you want, and that DNA can be assembled. Um, You know, it takes a little bit of work yet you can't, you can't stitch together a billion base pairs. Um, You can't build a billion base pairs all at once, but you can build shorter parts of base pairs and then join them together. So you could, you know, the technology is uh, um, evolving very, very quickly, by which you can design uh, DNA and and build, design and build DNA. And so, what's not really understood is what all the genes in the human genome do, and uh, how to uh, how to get. Um, you know, it raises the question. Okay, let's say you have the perfect uh, a DNA sequence that you want to build a baby with, how do you get that into an actual baby, right? So how do you introduce that into, into a cell? And I don't understand all the biology of that stuff. But I do know that, you know, there, there was an experiment um, where something like 19 changes were made to a pig's genome to create a pig that was uh, immune to viral infection. Um, so that's pointing in that direction, right? If you can just go to a computer and type up a pig genome and then have a pig built to have that, uh, um, to match that specification it's not too far from that to humans. So I don't know. There are lots of really interesting, intriguing, uh, and sometimes quite scary, uh, scenarios on the horizon. I mean, they're not all scary, but, but there, there are many, uh, uh, unanswered questions and, and and a lot of things that i come back to all the time is the disparity of power the disparity of power and wealth in the world where you have you know some class of people who are like for all intents and purposes are infinitely rich they have more money than they could ever use uh in their lifetime you know it's impossible to spend it and um You know, and at the upper ends, and at the lower ends of the spectrum, there's no difference, in my opinion, between political power and economic power. In other words, after you have a couple, you know, tens of billions of dollars, um, what that translates into is your ability to to change political systems. And at the low end, there's no difference between money and power. If you don't have enough money to buy any clothes, to buy uh, any food to eat, you know, and, and you're destitute, then uh, money just, uh, you know, uh, translates into ability to keep yourself alive. And so um, in this kind of uh, world that we now live in, where you have extreme wealth and extreme poverty, and the separation is kind of like a, in a centrifuge, the two are being concentrated. And then if one and has access to all this technology and the other end has none, then that raises all kinds of questions about power and fairness and justice. And, uh, you know, I I don't know. Strange things are going on.
2: Well, we're talking about genetic engineering. It just then further makes me want to think about topics like bioprinting uh yeah. 3d printing organs people what have you yeah just uh, you know they're working on 3d printing food these days they're talking about uh, 3d printing and also adding biomechanics to replace organs like uh pancreas for uh helping cure diabetes just then makes me curious have you Thought about exploring those topics in, in your writing and, you know, your own, um, thoughts along this tra- trail of conversation that we've been going through.
0: Well, I think, I think a lot of that stuff's very exciting. I mean, um, you know, there, there in the past, there have been diseases that look totally intractable, totally mysterious. just like the wrath of God and, uh, people got together and used science and figured out how to cure them. So, uh, you know, I think it'll be really cool if we can come up with a cure for diabetes involving creating new pancreases. Um, uh, however, <laughs> you know, it's really hard to imagine where, where it stops, right? You know, if somebody wants to to 3d print a third arm and have it growing out of their forehead, is that going to happen? Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it will, you know, radio controlled or internet controlled devices, part of people's bodies. So that we're all just literally, you know, uh, not just metaphorically, but literally connected to each other over the internet. Um, I don't know, a lot of stuff to write about. If you're a science fiction novelist, I, I have a lot more questions than I have answers. You may have noticed.
2: Um, what, what are some of your questions? Uh, you, know, you say you've got a lot more questions. Do you have a lot more arms and uh, answers Sir talk? Yeah. I, I just
0: like, where is it all going? Where, where what's going to happen? I mean, they, we haven't even mentioned the climate crisis yet, you know, um, what's or the development of artificial intelligence. Once you have AIs designing GNA, what, DNA, what are they going to come up with? Um, so, uh, given the the political uh, environment of the the um given the the, the climate crisis i mean cities are going to be inundated this is you know it's it's not fiction the climate change is real um uh ais are 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 uh developing maybe maybe it will be possible for 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 countries like the united states or china uh, or Russia developed to develop such sophisticated uh, technology that people uh, can be effectively followed and controlled. I mean, the biometric technology for recognizing people, facial recognition, voice recognition, all that, that's incredibly advanced. And it's only, to get more advanced. So I don't know that these, where is it all going is my general class of questions. Where, it, where is the hope and where are the dangers? I don't know. I have to, I'm working at a couple other novels after I finish, uh, uh, mountain of Devils, and uh, and I'll turn my attention to some of these things. I'll try to make books that are interesting, and uh, page turning, and a little bit scary, and hope people will
2: buy them. So you mentioned, uh, you know, one of the topics you just mentioned was like climate change. Well, you're on an island. How long have you been there? Uh, what changes have you seen firsthand with the uh, changes in your own shoreline? and tides over time and does your own community there have any few have any plans for a greater seawall or what have you to combat those issues
0: yes well so I, i've lived on this island for 25 years um uh, we see uh an eroding shoreline every time there's a bad storm we lose more of the island of course um that's been going on for a long time but it definitely is accelerating um the the uh, people on the island uh, are not talking about building a seawall, but learning how to. There are seawalls in some areas, um, but people are just uh, saying, "How are we going to adapt?" Nobody's trying to uh, to say we can prevent it or we can build a wall big enough to keep the ocean out. It's like, okay, these are the low-lying areas. These are the people. Mo- these are the areas most susceptible to erosion, Um, uh, these are the areas that people who have studied this predict we're going to lose to the ocean within the next 10 to 20 years, 30 years. So what are we going to do about it? And so people are making plans, the local town governments, the state governments, uh, conservation groups, and so forth, are looking at how we can adapt to it. And also people are, uh, are looking at how we can be part of the worldwide solution to see if we can be part of the global solution it's going to take to stop this, you know, scary change. Um, but, and I, I would say that, um, we had three really nasty nor'easter storms this last winter. And, uh, and one of them, um, had some of the re- st- strongest winds ever recorded. So I've, I've been in, uh, through many hurricanes here on the island and normally a hurricane when it hits this far up North in Massachusetts, it's just like a a really strong late summer or autumn storm. It's, it's not, you know, trees come down, the power might go out for a while, but it's not like a scary thing, but we had this Nor'easter last spring and I was at my office and my whole house shook when the gust came and it was, it was, it was freaky. Um, and, uh, a couple of roads washed out. A big sailboat ended up on Main Street. Um, it was like this storm was not, uh, was not fooling around. So uh, we have had three of the most intense storms that, that I've experienced in 25 years here all happened in the last year. So that's one of the predictions of climate science is that the, the storms are going to become more frequent and more intense. And that certainly seems to be born out here so the elver in woods hole which is the other side of the water here over in america um so martha's vineyard is seven miles off the coast of massachusetts so you can stand you know on, on the beach here and look over and see cape cod but over in woods hole there's a place called the woods hole research institute um which is one of the premier uh, places in the world for studying climate change and their scientists come over to Martha's Vineyard and give talks at the library and so forth on their research all over the world. And uh, so people here are attuned to it. Um, it's not like we think the island's going to sink into the sea next week, but we know that uh, we're certainly uh, in the ocean and the ocean's not going away. That's another reason that, you know, um, the fisheries here are very depleted. People used to it used to be a big place for harvesting fish, but now the the fish are being you know sucked out of the ocean. So you know lots of lots of changes that we need to, as a as a species we need to get a better handle on before we overfish the oceans and and uh, get wiped out by the
1: by the rising tides. So with everything we've discussed, um, if some of our listeners want to keep up to date with. What you're up to? What's the best way of them than doing that?
0: Well, I would really encourage them to go to my website, which is johnsundman.com, S-U-N-D-M-A-N, and sign up for my newsletter, um, and that comes out, uh, you know, one or two times a month, and I just give my thoughts on recent developments, um, and mostly related to to biohacking and biotechnology, but also on artificial intelligence and uh, uh, other things in my life. I used to write a little bit about firefighting cause I was a volunteer firefighter here, but I had to retire when I turned uh, 65. So not too much more in the way of firefighting stories, but, um, yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter. It's J S U N D M A N U S like J Sundman U S. And, uh, uh, I'm on Twitter pretty, pretty frequently and I'd love to be in touch with uh, your listeners.
1: And when will we hear about the release of the new book that you're writing?
0: Uh, I'll make an announcement in about a month's time about when the, uh, when the early versions will be available. So if you're on my mail list, you sign up for my newsletter, you'll get, a, you'll get an announcement. I'll put it on my website and I'll announce it on Twitter.
2: Any, any last words, any questions for us today?
0: No, I'd just like to thank you guys very much. It's been great fun. Um... And uh, I appreciate your questions. I appreciate the conversation. And I'll be sure to uh, check out some of your uh, uh, interviews with other people on your podcast.
2: Thank you. And definitely a special thank you to you, uh, John, along with our listeners for joining us today. If you want to learn more about our weekly explorations, uh, check out dangerousminds.io for more information.
1: While you're there, be sure to check out how you too can join us on this journey as we dive further into the tech, the projects, and the people behind them within this rapidly growing community of biohacking, grinding, citizen science, implantable technology, and network security.
2: So please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments. You're welcome to find us at dangerousminds.io or on IRC at hashtag dangerousminds. On Freenode, along with our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash dangerous minds podcast. And perhaps one day we might talk to you about the work and or projects you're exploring or developing. Until next time, seek the spark
1: machine human lives can't handle the dream scientific progression is steamrolling there's no preventing it going ahead now we're intrinsically liquid technology biology as we know it is dead
2: definitely uh thank you again for joining us today it was quite a bit of different topics yeah um
1: i just wanted to say it off the record as well for the for the editor or whoever's editing this um we've done loads of these interviews and john i, I really enjoyed that interview Thank you. Uh, I feel like I could just sit there and just listen to you go on for hours about loads of different things. <laughs> so, um, you know, I I do appreciate your your time. I, I really enjoyed that interview.
0: Well, thank you, guys. Thank you. I, and I I know you're going to have to edit it. And it's going to be a lot of work, but I appreciate that. I, let me just tell you to one thing. You know about that what a nor'easter is. Um, the, we have storms here where the uh, basically it comes up. Uh, like a cyclical storm, like a hurricane that comes up the the coast and intensifies when it gets up near New England, and so even though the storm is traveling in a generally um, uh, north um, east, uh, how would it say northeast direction, the winds come in from the uh, the northwest because it's a cycle storm, a, a cyclonic storm. And, um, and so it, it's, it's, it's like a hurricane, but it has a different, it comes in the, they, they come in the spring when a hurricane normally comes in the late summer, uh, or autumn. And, uh, uh, and it's really something because the wind is always from one direction in the, and if you, you know, when, if it's raining or maybe even a little bit of snow, if it's in March, the, the, the wind, uh, the rain is coming at you horizontally. It's not coming down vertically from the sky. It's coming at you like, like it's being shot out of a fire hose at you. So anyway, it's a very typical uh, New England kind of storm. It's different from, it's like, it's like we hardly ever get tornadoes in New England. We get them once in a while, but they get them out in, in the Plains State. And people who are in Texas and Oklahoma or whatever know about, about tornadoes. Out here, we know about nor'easters.
2: Yeah, I've always heard the joke uh, when I was up in New Hampshire, uh, working at camp up there for about a year, uh, not that long ago, or that long ago, depends on what have you, uh, that snow you would uh, suck up on eggs and uh, bread and milk, but a nor'easter, you'd just go get like a few cases of beer and you <laughs> will be fine.
0: Yeah, yeah, they, they, they come and go pretty quick. But but they're intense. And this year the the you know they they were nasty, man. hundred mile an hour winds, hundred and ten mile an hour winds. It's pretty intense.
1: We don't mm-hmm. we don't have anything as interesting as that. We just have just grizz like grizzly weather. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Nothing exciting over here. <laughs> well, okay guys, I'll look forward to, to seeing this when it gets posted. Right. Yeah, let me let me know if
0: you happen to cross over this side of the pond at any time. Very good. Thank you. I will do that. Have a good day, sir. Okay, good day, guys.
2: Bye. Bye.